what would you guys think of me? This is an ugly illustration, by the way. What would you think of me if I pretended in front of Melanie, my wife of many years, if I pretended to give my affection, my covenant love, just pretend, my allegiance and praise to another woman, pretending to be married to her, I wonder what you would think of me. Would that be a wise thing? Would that be particularly discerning? Would that be undiscerning? Would that be dangerous? Would that be foolish? And even though I might just be pretending, what if the other woman wasn't pretending, but seeking to slowly lure me away from my first love? I wonder on behalf of Melanie and my kids, I wonder what you would think of that woman and how you might want to step in, assuming the best of intentions. This morning we see that God's people in the church of Thyatira, modern-day Turkey, we see that God's people there were tempted to be lured away from Christ, similar to last week, lured away by a false teacher and false teaching. And Christ intervenes with His Word. He intervenes reminding the church of their need to be discerning in order to preserve and hold fast to Christ. So that's kind of like the big idea. Christ reminds them to be discerning in order to preserve and hold fast to Christ. We continue our series this morning as we look at the section of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus addresses the seven churches, which represent all Christians kind of everywhere, these seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and really applies to everybody, So, or at least Christians. So turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at 18 to 29. 18 to 29. This book is a vision that Jesus Christ gave to John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, and it, it is a vision about the things that are to come at the consummation of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ, where He finally delivers, He brings final deliverance, judgment, against those who war against him. Christians have noted that this book falls under the category of apocalyptic literature. Of course, it has elements of other things like a regular letter because he wrote to real Christians to be circulated amongst the churches there. But it, is in a, it, it falls underneath also apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic just means revelation. So if you look in Revelation 1.1, if you wanted to, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's similar to the last half of the book of Daniel in that it addresses the imminent coming of the end, the end of this present evil age, and then the final consummation of God's kingdom. And in so doing, he uses here similar symbolic imagery to speak of the end times when Christ comes to bring final salvation. Given Christ's judgment and His return, a final deliverance of His people, Christ addresses this, His people, that is the Christians, calling them, urging them to persevere. And this he does in the letter, letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We've been looking at these letters for the last few weeks, and today we look at Christ's letter to the church in Thyatira. So uh, if you're interested in geography, think of 40 miles southeast of the city that we looked at last week, that is Pergamum. I'll go ahead and read there, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, 
who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Point number one, let's look, at, let's look first at Christ's encouragement to the church. Christ's encouragement to the church and if you notice, as we go through these letters, as we've already seen in the past, actually, uh, Christ addresses the church. You know, he's writing, he, he tells John to write this letter to the angel of the church at, that could be a human uh, representative, it could be a spiritual counterpart. And then he oftentimes addresses, or he does address, the encouragements. And then if there is a, a charge being brought against them, then he eventually gets there, and then he calls them to repent, and then he uh, encourages them to persevere. So we're going to look at the encouragement to the church first. Along with the other churches in Asia Minor, this church was relatively young. It was a relatively young church in Asia Minor. People still had a, a living memory of Christ by the time John uh, wrote the letter in his mid-90s A.D. as he was exiled on the Mediterranean island of Patmos. Obviously, John himself was a witness to Christ, and maybe even John had been to this church. Maybe had been to the area preaching the gospel, ministering to these Christians, most of whom, we can totally assume, came out of idol worship. The overwhelming majority of the culture was given to paganism, similar to the areas and the people that we've seen in previous times in terms of the letters. They were given to paganism and idol worship, and this paganism was really woven into the fabric of society. Let me explain how. For example, um, you know how some of you guys might be in some sort of union, well, they had, instead of unions, they had these things called trade guilds or associations. You know, they imagine them having a guild for those working in fabrics or another guild working uh, for those working in metals like burnished bronze, as we see there in the first verse. Jesus' feet, there are burnished bronze, right? Maybe there was a, a, or there was a guild for those working in these types of metals. Well, here's the deal. Each guild worshipped different pagan deities. And to be part of the guild meant that you went and made sacrifices and worshipped that particular deity. And so, therefore, it was really embedded in the culture. I mean, maybe you guys already know that in your workplaces there might be a certain culture, even maybe a spiritual culture, driving your workplace. And so the, their pagan idolatries were really embedded into their cultures. Now, if you became a Christian, 
where eventually you come to see that Christ is the only true living God. He is the only Lord and Savior, that there is only one God. All of a sudden, you find yourself swimming against all of your friends and family that you grew up with, swimming against that cultural stream. Not only would you go against your family and face the ostracism there, but you would also go against the guild. That is those who give you your employment. And eventually, right, that's going to affect your friendships. That's going to affect your work prospects in the city. So if we try and find something of a modern parallel, somewhat of a modern parallel, let's say after work, you know, you guys work places. Everyone goes out and does a certain something. Let's say they go out for drinks on a Friday night. And of course, this leads to everybody getting drunk because that's their culture. If they're, imagine people who choose to do that. And your boss equates partying and getting drunk with faithfulness, loyalty to the company and the boss and your fellow employees. Now, all of a sudden, if you develop convictions against drunkenness, even though you may love your boss, love your coworkers, love your company, right? You can imagine all of a sudden you start concluding that it's better to stay away from that environment because of your own temptations and things like this, what glorifies God. You might get more than a little few jokes thrown at your way. You might get entirely canceled. Your boss might question your loyalty to her, to him, question your loyalty to the company, and that is going to affect your job prospects. Maybe you're not chosen anymore to be one of the top five, or so to speak, to go and close the deal. Maybe all of a sudden you start getting the leftovers, and soon your family is struggling in poverty. The same dynamic was going on with the Christians in other cities, and we can safely assume here in Thyatira as well, allegiances to Christ and faithfully walking after him came at a cost. And it seems that the Christians in Thyatira were struggling to hold fast. But again, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to the criticisms and the charges that Jesus brings against them. But first, we see very clearly, right, Jesus encourages them about their growth in the faith. You look there in verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith and service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Praise God, right? They're actually growing in Christ. And Jesus takes note of it, and he encourages them in it. I think we would serve ourselves well to take Jesus as our model, still stating the encouragements, even though he has some severe criticisms. I mean, he is the quintessential counselor. Though he has criticisms and knows what they still need to work on, he never loses sight of the encouragements of how they have genuinely grown in faith. What are their works? He says they're your love, right? Love to God, love to the brothers. Their faith, their faithfulness to God, they're walking in the faith as well. But then also their service and patient endurance. They are serving, you can think of their service to the church, on behalf of Christ himself. And they are enduring, patiently enduring some degree of pressure from the outside, the culture from Rome. Maybe not to the degree they should have been, but definitely a greater degree than they were at the first, in the beginning. These Christians are genuinely growing. They were walking with Christ more vibrantly than they did at first. They have more works of faith than they did at first. And logically, they had a purer heart than they did at first. We want to take note about how Jesus encourages Christians here. Maybe you guys interact with Christians who might be discouraged by some, some, some sort of sin struggle that they feel is quite overwhelming, right? I'm sure that we've all been there. I encourage you to encourage them to see how Christ has indeed changed them already. You guys know that I give this advice. I probably give this advice a few times a year. But encourage them in how you see God 
in how you know that God has changed them and how you know that God is changing them. Let's say the sin is, for example, carnal lust. We know the thoughts in our mind, right? And, and as Christians, we are convicted of it. We repent of our sin. But even though, you know, we, we have repented, you know, sometimes we still wrestle with ungodly condemnation, ungodly guilt, and so we get discouraged. When you meet up with someone who's, who's clearly discouraged and voicing their struggle to you and their discouragement, you know, you can say, like, look, brother and sister, what was your sin struggle like before you were saved? I had a conversation with uh, someone even recently, and I asked him this question. And, and he simply said, well, there was no struggle. I just gave into it before I was a Christian. Well, well, then you can follow that up with, well, and now you actually are struggling, right? You're actually battling against it, meaning you don't want to do it now, even though we might be tempted, even though we might fall. You know, the answer, of course, is, well, yeah, I don't want to do it. I genuinely don't want to do it. Well, why don't you want to do it? Well, it's because I want to please Jesus, because Jesus tells me not to, because, you know, on and on, because I want to be holy like Christ, because I want to treat people like Christ wants them to be treated. And you can respond, well, you realize that that conviction and that desire only comes to people by God's grace in Christ? It is because He is working in you, Christian, that you battle in the first place. That you want to go north according to your spiritual compass. These are the ways that I've seen God working you. And then you can go on and list all of them. So let me encourage you to remind them of this and you friend ask the questions of them so that they could verbalize it themselves and help them reflect on God and his grace working in them working in them in Christ now in relation to carnal lust you know in this advice I don't I don't want to downplay other ways practical ways in which we can encourage people to to persevere like if somebody struggles with pornography or lust for example on their phones right there are practical ways to help them with their phones and you know social media and stuff like that like that's important too but here my point is that as we as christians we christians can encourage people by pointing out genuinely how the spirit of christ is working to make them and ourselves more christ-like just as he promised and so even in the midst of big-time struggles and discouragements, we are pointed to the fact that God is faithful. The Thyatiran Christians were being worked on by Jesus Christ. Once they had given themselves fully to living for themselves and to worshiping these pagan deities in full, but now they were saved by Christ. They're growing in their faith and in their works for Christ. But just as we are works in progress, so the Christians in Thyatira were as well. This brings us to the next point. Though they were growing in their love and faith in Christ, they were too tolerant. They were too tolerant. Point number two. Point number two. They were too tolerant. Tolerance, obviously, is a buzzword today. How can anybody be too tolerant, you might ask? But really, many times, a certain intolerance is a very good thing. Think about some of you guys' own family backgrounds. How many children, for example, experience the damages of their parents' tolerance, their acceptance of sexual sin and adultery that eventually ripped your own families apart? Is that tolerance good or is it bad? How many of us can remember even a time when we were too tolerant of sin? Sin that we still experience guilt and shame over. Clearly, we don't want to be tolerant of everything. For the Thyatiran Christians, Jesus cha cha charges them with tolerance. 
intolerance of false prophets and false doctrine. Look what Christ has against them in verse 20. 220, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This is very similar to last week if you joined us then. We have an Old Testament parallel uh, drawn to describe the New Testament church's situation or at least this church in Thyatira. Last week we talked about the Old Testament character of Balaam, this false prophet, and his teaching and how eventually he laid it. He encouraged uh, one to lay a trap for the people of God. This week we have the false prophetess Jezebel found in 1 Kings. Jezebel was a pagan wife of an Israelite king, and she ended up influencing and leading basically the whole entire northern kingdom of Israel into idol worship and sorcery. She and her almost 900 false prophets just imagine, just picture that for a moment. One from within the people of the Lord, claiming to have the words of the Lord, but leading the people to rebel against the Lord. It's a bad situation for Israel. Eventually, God does, in fact, go on to vindicate his name through Elijah, Elisha, and Jezebel and her prophets, false prophets, are destroyed. The church in Thyatira, like Israel in the Old Testament, what, what was going on? They were being drawn away to false gods because they were tolerating this false prophetess. Somehow it seems that this person had uh, joined their number and she claimed to have the words of God himself, right? That's what a prophet is, but she's false. She's a false prophet. She probably claimed some sort of secret teaching. She probably said that participating in the worship of pagan idols is okay for Christians. And so they commit, therefore, a metaphorical sexual immorality. Some think this is a, a metaphoric sexual immorality uh, because this metaphor clearly shows up in Scripture to communicate a spiritual idolatry. The Jezebel account in 1 Kings, it highlights really idol worship, whereas last week really the highlight is not only idol worship but then also sexual immorality. So this Jezebel, right? imagine one in our number, might have been saying something to the people of God, Christians, let's go to the pagan temple and sacrifice. It's not a big deal. God doesn't care. It won't hurt you. No harm, no foul. And this teaching would have been a temptation to the people, remember, already facing social pressure, ostracism, they could face persecution, they could end up in poverty. I imagine if those things were what we were facing, imagine the strong temptation for some, certainly not all, but for some to play the octopus, change their colors to blend in, be elusive to the world, so the world never knows. Of course, the problem is with so many, these people end up eluding Jesus Christ. I wonder, friend, if you've ever been tempted to downplay your Christ and your Christianity so that you can win the praise of the world. Think of an example, like when your coworkers talk and laugh about lewd and vulgar things, sexual immorality, talking about someone in a way that Christ would not and you, in that moment, you have to make a choice. As all eyes are on you in, that, in the face of that jo joke. And so you join in. Ha! That was a good one. You know what that says to them? That says, yes, I'm just like you. Christians are just like you. Jesus doesn't care about that. He doesn't give a rip about that. So neither do I. The Christians in Thyatira were tempted to downplay Christ and his Christianity 
But we know that Jesus alone is the true God and Savior, that he alone is worthy of worship and praise. But yet, imagine some in the church there following after Jezebel. They say, what, you want to go participate in the feast to Zeus or Apollo, the son of God, the son of Zeus? Praise be to them. Yes, let's go. Let's go feast with them. This flip-flop is so offensive. Common sense tells us this, right? You don't have to be a Christian. You, 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 know, you could be a non-Christian. You understand that this such flip-flopping is so offensive. Think of my introduction. What did you think of me pretending, just pretending, to give my love and affection, my covenant allegiance and praise to another woman, pretend to be married to her? What would you think of me? What did you think of me as I was talking about that? The vast majority of the world would find it absolutely inappropriate and offensive. And then again, think back again. What would you think of the girl who was encouraging your husband or me to think, it's okay, it's just play, but you know really she has every intention of luring me away. That's Jezebel. She wound her way into the church and was drawing people away. And what does the Lord think about her? She may claim to be with God, have the words of God, but in reality, she is with Satan, the deceiver. Look there in verse 24. She even speaks the words of Satan. Jesus makes it very clear that for Jezebel and those who titillate themselves with her, he will judge them. Look at Jesus' warning of judgment there in verses 21 to 23. 21 to 23. I'll go ahead and read that now. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and with those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. This is stark language. And I think one reason why the language is used here is because the Thyre tyrants were absolutely familiar with it. Because that's what they said their gods could do. Notice the language of sickness here, Jezebel onto a sickbed. Those who follow her, her teaching, that is her spiritual children. Jesus says, I will strike them dead or kill with death. And then for those who commit adultery with her but refuse to repent, they are thrown into great affliction, thrown into great tribulation. The way that Jesus describes himself, right, he's inserting himself here. The way that he describes himself and this judgment here is an absolute slap in the face to the gods of Thyatira and the false prophetess Jezebel. Apollo, the great son of Zeus, for example, was praised for supposedly having the power to bring sickness and to kill with plague, to kill with plague with his arrows. So you see how then proud and insolent Jezebel is to Jesus Christ. She is actually in Jesus' face saying, come on, no harm, no foul. Let's join in worship with Apollo, the one who can kill with the death. And Jesus says, who is the one who kills with the plague? It is I, the Lord. And think of Exodus. And think of the account of Israel even later on, as recounted in Ezekiel. The same is true. We know in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord is ultimately the one who possesses the authority to judge, even with the plague. What a useful warning it was to these Christians who might have been tempted, at least some of them tempted, and certainly in your face to Jezebel, the false prophetess. Forget Apollo, the son of Zeus, the supposed son of God. Sure, he is said to have the power over the plague as a warrior god. He was pictured there in Thyatira as the warrior god on his horse, wielding his double-bladed battle axe. 
But Jesus really is the Lord who comes to judge. You see who these words are from? Verse 18, look there. These are the words of the Son of God. He is the one who is the judge. It is he who has eyes like flame of fire, that is, he sees with righteous eyes into the hearts of all, and he knows. And it is he whose feet are like burnished bronze. So imagine, right, you guys are making your living, you're part of the, bronze, the burnished bronze guild, you, you, you are worshiping some sort of deity, right? He says, he says, I have the ones of not just weapons of burnished bronze, not just do I wear stuff decorated made of burnished bronze, which is what the guilds would do. My feet are of burnished bronze. And with them he tramples on those who war against him, as Isaiah says. You can imagine the effect of this judgment. Look at the effect of the judgment there. Verse 23, all the churches will know that I am, that he is the Lord, that he is the true God. I am he who searches mind and heart. Again, he knows, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Christ clearly is the true Son of God. That's what all Scripture says, the eternal Son of God. Listen to Psalm chapter 2, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, that is the nations, the rulers who oppose them. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the Lord speaking to David's Lord, that is Jesus. I will tell of the, the decree the Lord said to me, this is God saying to Jesus, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And the whole earth is called to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his... For, he, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. There is only one Son of God, and beside him there is no other. Given they serve and serve the true Son of God, the Christians are then to repent and hold fast. This brings us to point number three. Repent and hold fast. We see the call to repentance there in verse 22, though the judgment is strong. Did you notice there? Right? That those who do in fact commit adultery with Jezebel are still given the opportunity to repent. It's only if they refuse, right? If they refuse, if they stiff arm God. It's only then that judgment comes. This I find to be awesome news for Christians. We may not be, again, committing adultery, feasting the pagan gods and whatnot, but we certainly commit spiritual adultery all the time. You know this. Consider your temptations as you are tempted to give your idolatry and your allegiances to worldly pleasure and security. Where we maybe feast on the lust of our minds or the world's riches rather than pursue and delight in Jesus Christ. How about our, our idolatry of others? This is more, maybe more similar to uh, um, what was going on in Thyatira. Idolatry of others or pleasing people longing and dying to fit in with the world around us, but not really caring so much what God thinks about us. 
consider our, our, our idolatry to ourselves, living for our own self-righteousness, trying to be the perfect God instead of letting God be God and depending on Christ for His, uh, His righteousness. This is clearly dangerous. You look there in verse 23. Look very clearly. Jesus says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Similar to Romans chapter 2, verse 6, where God says, I will render each one according to their works. But again, the fact that God gives the opportunity to people who commit this spiritual adultery is good news. God knows that we are all in trouble, that we have all gone our own way, that we have all turned away from God and chased after other things, which is why, this whole, the whole reason why He sends us Christ. He knows that there is none righteous, no, not one. This is the, why He provides the righteous one. He knows that we cannot live underneath the demands of the law, which we were created to do, but rebelled against Him, our Creator, which is why He provides us His own righteousness for those who turn from their sins and believe on Him. And it is they who heed His warning and embrace His command. It is they who are, in fact, declared righteous by God. That's how sinners, you and me, can stand before a holy and righteous God. It is only on account of Christ and His righteousness. Christ, the righteous one. Christ, who holds out His righteousness. And we, on account of Christ and His work, we are saved. Praise God, we are counted righteous in Jesus. We know that we ourselves have nothing to bring to the table of salvation. And so God the judge, He counts us. He credits Christ's righteousness as ours, even though we have done nothing to add to our salvation or to grant us His righteousness. Praise God that He invites sinners to receive all of the blessings in Jesus through repentance and faith. From this passage and many others, we see that Christ is holy and righteous. No doubt He's also loving and compassionate, right? Calling people to repent. So this is this Jesus who, quote, does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. John 3.16. For God so loved this bad and evil and sin-stained world that He did what, right? That He did what? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God desires even the worst of sinners come to repentance. Even, friends, Jezebel. You look there in verse 21. Isn't it astounding that the one who snuck into the people of God, who claimed to have the very words of God, but who led the people away from God, Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. If you're visiting with us, it's very clear from this passage that yes, there will, there will come a time when Jesus will come to judge. But you've got to realize that God is incredibly patient and calls those who sin against Him, who have rebelled against our very own Creator, He calls them to repent time after time after time again. And all of the pages of Scripture, there's the one story about how a loving God in His great patience and compassion pursues sinners despite their hard-heartedness. If you want to know more, I encourage you to make a point to read the Bible. As long as Scripture is, and even longer, so is God's long, steadfast love. It tells, the Scripture tells of one, the one story of God's plan to save sinners, which is the Gospel. 
Though the loving God created us to be in a loving relationship with Him, and even though we rejected Him as sinners, we rebelled against Him, we told Him to get lost, we don't care what you say, we're going to do what we want. It's like we light the fire in our own house on purpose to burn it down, but yet God pursues us anyways in Jesus Christ. And He lives the life we could not in perfect righteousness, because we could not, we were not righteous and could not live a life of righteousness. And he dies the death that only the unrighteous should because he is merciful. And he stands on the cross. He stands in for us as our substitute, bearing the wrath that we deserve. So that all who repent of their sins, who lay down our arms and turn to Christ would be welcomed. Jesus himself welcomes us happily as full-fledged citizens, a member of his family where we are forgiven of our sins, declared righteous by God and adopted into His family. So in our passage, though there is very clear, it is very clear that judgment will in fact come at the appointed time, the fact that it hasn't come yet is still more evidence that God is patient and desires for all to come to repentance. This very hour, friend, is evidence. And He calls you to turn from your sins and you will be saved. Saved from judgment and saved to Christ, where you would come to know all of his spiritual blessings. Jesus also calls the church to hold fast to what you have until I come. So he calls us to repent, or those who are given to that teaching to repent. He also calls the church there to hold fast to what you have, to what you have until you come. I'm sorry, until he comes. You look there in 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. And really here, he's, he's encouraging the rest of the people who aren't given to this teaching. Look there in 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have their burden. He calls them there in verse 25 to hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. That is Jesus Christ. That is Christ's commands. That is the faith. Hold fast to those. If you guys have ever been under pressure, imagine them, right? Being underneath this pressure bearing the attacks from the outside, the potential poverty, the potential ostracism, the potential persecution, to those standing firm in their love and in their deeds and in their service to Jesus Christ and their perseverance as Christ's new covenant community, how important it must have been to hear the true Son of God who would come, in fact, to bring final deliverance, to hear Him say, Hold fast. There's no other burden I lay upon you, but soldiers, stand fast. Recalls Christ, Christ, who is the true Savior God in contrast to the emperor or Apollo. The true Savior God says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For those holding fast amidst this barrage from Rome and the culture around them, look at what Christ reminds them of there in verse 26. To the overcomers, to the overcomers who keeps, who keeps Christ's work. Just think of the, the faith and Jesus himself and the works that Christ himself has laid out for us. It is they who will have authority, not Rome, not Apollo, who supposedly kills with the plague and whatnot. It is to the overcomers. On behalf of Christ, the true king, it is they who will have authority. Notice he doesn't say 
Christians, now look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to war now and seize the authority. Christians are not commanded to do any such thing. This authority comes at the end. And just as we saw from Psalm chapter 2 that Christ, the eternal Son of God, will rule with a rod and judge the world, so Christ extends His authority and judgment to the Christian. That He, she too, will rule with a rod and judge under the authority of Christ, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This has huge implications for us. If we might be fearing or desiring to fit in with the world and the culture around us, tempted to play the octopus and be elusive to the world out of fear for what might come, we are reminded here of who the true king is, who the true warrior God is. It's he who judges and he who keeps, he who calls, he who commands, and he who promises his very own self to those who endure to the end. Just as we saw from Psalm chapter 2 that Christ is the eternal Son of God who will rule and judge the world. So too, remember, Christian, that this authority, this judgment even, is extended to His people. What an end. What an end to those who resist the world and hold fast to Jesus Christ. For one who is tempted to give into the temptation and participation of the worship and feasts of these false gods, yes, they might win approval to those who will turn their backs on them anyway. But friends, you realize that Christ will never do this. He is the good God. The only God. For those who hold fast until the end, for the Savior, they receive, what does it say there? the Savior Himself, the Morning Star, as Jesus calls Himself in Revelation 22, the true Savior, God, the true Deliverer and Judge. The question, Christian, is do you believe and see in who Jesus truly is today? Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You for these warnings just as we thanked You the same last week. We thank you, Lord, that it's very clear that you take those who speak falsely about you very seriously. We thank you, God, too, that as we know in our own hearts that we are tempted towards spiritual idolatry all the time, as every sin that we give into is committing spiritual adultery, whether the so-called big immoral sins or even the so supposed moral sins that the world could even say is somehow good. We know, Lord, that it all, all of it, is spiritual idolatry. God, we pray that you truly would help us see more of who you are. We thank you, Lord, that across Scripture we know, Lord, that you are judge, righteous, and holy, but that you also are loving, compassionate, merciful, and gracious. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit see you and be so compelled by your character and your righteousness, your holiness, and your love that we would run towards you knowing that you call sinners to turn so that you would receive us into your welcoming arms. God, we know that you are that compassionate. We pray, Lord, that you would always help us know that in you there is true peace, eternal riches in Jesus Christ, and final security in salvation in Christ. We thank you, God, that you 
grant us such marvelous security as you save us from our own sins and the judgment that we ourselves deserved. As Christ, you bore the wrath that your people deserved. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we know, God, that just as you have given us Christ, the greatest, so, Lord, you will give us everything to see our salvation to the end. In your name we pray. Amen.